Bibles, Revelation chapter 20. Now we'll officially begin. Tonight is going to be the final message on our overview study of the book of Revelation. Those of you joining us for the first time tonight, welcome. Hopefully you've had, uh, what, 15 hours, 17 hours, if you give or take the times I went over, which is basically every week, uh, to come back through and open up through the, those podcasts to, to look at everything we've covered so far. Tonight we're coming to the final chapters, the last three chapters of the book of Revelation. We've already seen that John, he was given this unique task the Apostle John, he's the author of the book of Revelation. He was literally in the Isle of Patmos, prisoned. And I believe at this point in his life, he was an invalid. He was uh, persecuted so much, he had boils all over his body from when they dumped pitch over him in Rome, that he was on this island, this kind of Alcatraz-type prison island, probably thinking that there's no use for him, probably thinking that there is no way God can still use me. I am on this prison to die and to take my last breaths. But our thoughts are not as God's thoughts. And as far as the heaven is from the earth, so far as the distance between our thoughts, Isaiah 55 says, when you think that you're down and out, when you think that God can't use you, that's exactly the moment when God wants and can use you. He takes John on this island in 90 AD and supernaturally transports him through time to the day of the Lord. We talked about it ad nauseum in this class, about how that day starts with the rapture of the church. A day when all of us who, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, who are not trusting in ourselves for salvation, but only in His shed blood on the cross, it's a day when Jesus Christ looks down on His bride and says, Come away, my darling. Come up hither, as he says in the Song of Solomon, and come away with me. Be with me. And all of the Christians, like that, are no longer here. That is the event that begins the day of the Lord, and John is miraculously transported through time to that day. And he's given a special task from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He catches this vision. His eyes have been anointed, and he sees the revelation, he sees Jesus Christ in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his righteousness, in all of his holiness, high and lifted up. And he doesn't look a thing. We can go back to John cha or Revelation chapter 1 and see that first chapter. He doesn't look a thing like any of the paintings throughout history portray him as. Doesn't look a thing how any of the pictures that might be in some of your Bibles, if you still have kitty Bibles on your laps right now, doesn't look a thing like any of those drawings. No. This is the holy God Almighty. It is the glory of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, shining through. And he gives him a specific task. He says, John, from the perspective of this day and time right now, the Lord's day, I want you to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And from the perspective of that day, Revelation chapter 4, the beginning of the Lord's day, the things which he had seen were what? Anybody else with us for the remaining 15 weeks? Thank you. Church history, which is chapters 2 through 3. And we looked at how God, he promised in Isaiah chapter 43 in Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and chapter 3 that he would give us history in advance. In 90 AD, we were given an insight from God himself in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 of everything that's happened in the last 2,000 years of human history. So you can take a history book, line it up with the Word of God and say, okay, history is saying that this is what happened in the name of Christ. But when I compare with the Word of God, what this historian is saying is the work of God is actually the work of Satan. And in the same history book, this historian is saying what is the work of Satan or the heretics, the Bible actually says that's the work of God. Man always has it mixed up. Mankind doesn't really know what the Word of God actually says or what the will of God says because they are trying constantly to take the Word of God out of the hands of the common man. We spent so many weeks looking at that throughout church history. 
And then finally, what, 500 years ago, the Bible becomes back into the hands of the common man, and we have all these great missions journeys and missions trips that go on, and churches established throughout all of this world, and we come to the end of the church age, a time that the Bible describes as lukewarm, a time where man isn't taking a stand on the Word of God, but at the same time, he's not completely chucked it all in. No, he's just right there in the middle. Not being bold with his friends at school or his co-workers, but at the same time, oh, at least he's saved. Lukewarm. The period that describes the time and the age in which we live in. The last church period before chapter 4 of Revelation happens. Where John is writing from. And the rapture of the church happens and God tells him, write the things which are. The things that are happening right now with the Antichrist coming to power. Again, this is from John's perspective, not ours. We're still in the church age right now. So for us, it's the things that shall come hereafter. But John's perspective, rapture already happened. He's writing about the Antichrist rising to power, talking about how things are very peaceful, relatively peaceful. But as you study Jeremiah chapter 5, you know what you find? What they say, peace, peace, uh, you ought not to believe it because really it is no peace. That's what it's going to be like for those who are left behind, for everyone who has never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, for everyone who has never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Man, it might be peaceful at first, being left behind. But as we've looked at the last couple of weeks, the things which shall be hereafter, or the tribulation period, it is anything but peaceful. We saw seven seals opening up the judgments of God. We saw seven uh, uh, trumpets proclaiming and declaring the judgment of God upon this earth. We saw seven vials of the wrath of God being dumped out upon the sin of mankind all throughout this place during the tribulation period. Again, from our perspective, a time that has not happened yet. And we'll be gone when it does happen, praise the Lord. But not a good day for those who are left behind. We come all throughout the tribulation period, and even though God is executing His judgment and His wrath against sin and against people who refuse to receive the love of the truth, as 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, even though they refuse to do that, He's still faithful. And he sends 144,000 Jewish witnesses to reach out and evangelize this entire planet for him. And there are still multitudes of multitudes we saw in Revelation 7 of people coming to know Christ. And at the end of that seven-year tribulation period, as we concluded last week, Jesus Christ, he comes back. He comes back to take what is his, and that is a throne in Jerusalem, where he takes out the Antichrist, he wipes out all of the forces of darkness, and he sets himself up on a throne and sits down as king. That is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to where we are now. That was the intro. Don't be afraid. Front and back, we'll be fine. We have two more things left to talk about. The things which shall be hereafter. What happens after all of that? We've looked at the past. We looked at John's present, our future. But now let's see what goes into eternity future. Now that Jesus Christ is back on the throne, ruling and reigning to close out the book of Revelation. Number three, we see the great white throne judgment. Now, we haven't really talked too much about this, and we really don't have the time to dive into it tonight, but there's actually seven different types of judgment in the Bible. The two most common ones, and that's the one that everyone wants to know about, right? Which one am I going to be at? Which one am I going to be judged at? We have talked before about the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you notice that's different than the one we just read. The judgment seat of Christ is a place where Believers, people who are in a relationship with Christ, they stand before God and they give an account, not for their sins. You know why? Who can tell me why? Say it. They've been paid for. 
If you're in here today and you have a relationship with Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, your sins have already been bought and paid for. They were judged when He took your judgment on the cross. So if you're in here tonight, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you die, you're going to stand before Him in heaven and not go anywhere else, the Bible says that you're going to stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account not for your, your, uh, your sins, no, to give an account for your works. Your works that you've done since becoming a Christian. That already happened. We talked about that in our study in Revelation. No, this judgment, it's for everyone else. It's what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, look with me in verse 11. John writing, he says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Gee, isn't that interesting? There's no place for heaven and earth to hide. What a stark contrast to Christ's first coming. When he first came, there was no place for him at the end. There was no place for him when he came in the form of a baby. Heaven and earth didn't make room for him. And mankind all throughout the centuries have refused to make room for Jesus Christ in their life because he gets in the way of our sin. He gets in the way of what we want to do, what our plans, what our purposes are. And we have no room, no time for Christ. Make no mistake about it, you just read it. On this day, however, it's going to be the other way around. There's not going to be any room for the earth and heaven and for all the things in between to run and hide from this day. On your outline, we see the Lord Jesus Christ. He is seated on a great white throne as the judge. You can check out John chapter 5 later where he talks about these two resurrections, these two judgments that Jesus Christ is going to be conducting. Romans 2.16, he says the exact same thing. I have Ecclesiastes 11.9 on the screen here where he says, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. Let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. Keep in mind, when Solomon was writing Ecclesiastes, he was writing it from the perspective of a foolish man. He wasn't walking with God then. But even in that, there's still wisdom in what he says as the way he ends this. Walk in the ways of thine heart. In other words, eat, drink, and be merry. Do what you will. There's a caveat to it, though. But know thou that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. Understand, if your sins have not been judged at the cross, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as payment for your sins, you will have to give an answer for your sins on this day of judgment, according to this passage here. He continues on in the next chapter. He concludes this entire book. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, he says, For God shall bring some work. No, what does the Bible say? Every work into judgment... Oh, and don't miss this next part. With every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. See, it doesn't matter if you're counting on your good works to save you. It doesn't matter if you're counting on your good works to one day out, outweigh your bad. No, everything's going to be put to the test. Everything's going to be tried by fire. Everything's going to be brought into judgment. Yes, especially those things where you don't think that the all-seeing, all-consuming eyes of flame that Jesus Christ has in Revelation chapter 1, even those things, he's not going to miss a lick. It's all going to be brought forth to the table. You guys ever watch any kind of a, a trial and know the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial does not count? But justice for Johnny. <laughs> Have you guys ever watched like an actual like murder trial? What is a prosecutor and an defense attorney supposed to do? They have a table that they bring forth what? Evidence. Evidence. Everything to plead their case. If you're in here and you're not saved, oh, you'll have your case to bring. You'll bring forth all your good works, everything you did, and then it's going to be the prosecutor's turn. The prosecutor's going to bring forth literally your entire life of every thought, every word, 
Bible says in Matthew 5 that every idle word will be brought in the judgment. And every sin, everything you've done, it's all going to be on the table. It would probably be a three-year, five-year trial. But then again, from that perspective in heaven, time's going to be non-existent. It might take five years for your trial, but it'll go by just like that. And honestly, if you're standing in front of the presence of a holy, righteous, almighty God, you're going to be counting down the minutes before you can run away from Him. Lake of fire, as I've heard it said from other preachers, it's going to be a sign of mercy for the unrepentant, for those who are lost in His presence. You guys remember when Jesus cast out those demons? And he put them into the swine. What did the swine do? They ran into the water. They couldn't be stand to be in his presence. That's holiness. That's the judge. Letter B. The earth and heaven flee away, and those that were not part of the first resurrection are bodily resurrected to be judged. The dead from the sea... And hell are also bodily resurrected to stand before God with nowhere to hide. So in other words, I mean, just think about it. Why would he mention that? Let's go ahead and read it first. I don't want to jump too ahead. Look at verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were just... I only know of one book that contains multiple books. Unless you're thinking of an anthology, but... When it comes to matters of spiritual things, there's only one monarch book of books. And the dead which were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So your works are going to be lined up with what the Bible says. What's it going to say? And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Why do you think he would put something like even those in the sea, they're going to be brought up? ashes in the sea or something like that? Two birds, one stone. I was going to make a second point on that, but God probably knew I needed all the time I could, so two birds, one stone. People who died in shipwreck, number one. People whose ashes were burnt up and they were scattered. I'm just not thinking of this. I would love to know where the whole thought of, of, uh, of ashes came from. I wonder if it was some kind of superstition of man where He's like, well, if my body is completely consumed and it's just dust, there's nothing to come back from so I can be resurrected and stand before a holy and righteous God for judgment. You know why he puts this in here? To let us know that it doesn't matter what happens to the body, whether it's lost forever at sea and they just have to bury an empty casket of you, or whether or not you actually go bones and all. God's powerful enough. He's going to resurrect Every single body, no matter where they are on this planet, no matter how decomposed they are, he's going to bring all the molecules back to life, and he's going to put the life through them, and they're going to come back in their bodily form, resurrected, to stand trial. Powerful stuff. Our God doesn't mess around. 2 Peter 3.7 says, The heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of who? Ungodly men. Men who are not like God. Men who do not have their sins paid for because Jesus Christ is permanently living inside of them like He is for us born-again Christians. Letter C. All those that stand before God the, God the Son, Jesus, are judged according to their works based on things written in a book of books, otherwise known as the Bible. I thought this was interesting. This is Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. He says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. Oh, and check this out. Don't miss this name for Christ. And the Ancient of Days did sit on the throne, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, but his wheels as burning fire. That's interesting. That's almost the exact same description that John gives in Revelation chapter 1. Huh. Verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand 
thousands ministered unto him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Again, keep in mind Hebrew thinking back in 700, 500 BC. They didn't have words like millions and billions. 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, it's innumerable. The judgment was set and the books were opened. Do you know Christ? Have you ever entered into a personal relationship? Have you ever seen your need for a Savior? Have you ever seen your need? How could I possibly, my good works, add up to get to heaven? There's no way I can do it, Lord. That's why Jesus Christ came down here. God in the form of a man came down here, died on a cross, took your place. He died your death. He paid your debt, your fine, so that you don't have to stand here and have the books opened on Judgment Day. There's hope now before we get to the come up hither part of the day of the Lord. Don't leave here unless you're certain. Because what's coming next in letter D? Look at verse 14. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Again, Matthew 25, 41, a verse that everybody should have down. It should be a part of your witnessing every single time. You know what Jesus Christ had to say about hell? It was never meant for humans to go there. He didn't create it for us. It's for the devil and his angels. But as we looked at in recent weeks, mankind, according to Isaiah 63, he has, uh, mankind has all gone his own way. Mankind has all chosen his own way. And the way that we've chosen leads to death in Romans 6.23. And so because of that, Death leads to hell. It leads to the lake of fire. Letter E. Whosoever is found in the book of life is permitted into eternal life. But whosoever is not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. Look at verse 15. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. I know I just read that on your study sheet, but I just wanted you to see that it wasn't me who said it. This is in Revelation in the New Testament. You know, the lighter part of the Bible. The part of the Bible that so many Christians seem to think isn't so judgy and harsh and scary. Letter F. When that happens, sin is judged once and for all, and now all things can be restored to what they were intended to be in the original Garden of Eden. You might want to underline that word, original. Because I'm not talking about Genesis 2 and 3. I think I'll just leave them there with that one. We'll talk about that another day. Number four. <laughs> well, seniors, listen to the podcast. <laughs> what was the Garden of Eden like before Adam and Eve were there? <laughs> Number four. Where do you think Lucifer was? before Genesis 3. He wasn't always a serpent. Remember, he was an angel who led the worship of God on the mount in Eden before Adam and Eve. All right, there. There's a little teaser for you. Hey, you know what? Just study it out and then come back to me and let me know what you found. We'll talk about it later. Number four. Oh, I love it. A little stinger. Eternity future. Eternity future, letter A. After the entire universe is renovated by fire, God makes a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Can I get a reader for chapter 21, verses 1-2? Ethan. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more, no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Make note of that. New Jerusalem, it's a city that's compared to a bride prepared for her husband. Remind me again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and Ephesians chapter 5, uh, what are we as Christians called? The bride. the bride of Christ. Remember that. Coming back with that later. Actually, 
No, we're not. We're coming back to her right now. Let her be. God can now dwell. And don't miss this. God can now dwell without separation with mankind in heaven. Fill in your blank. It's Gentile. Earth. To fill in your blank. It's Jew. And the reason for that is because in this time, in the future, all of the people who are remaining here at earth at this time, it's all of Israel that endured to the end. It's all of the Jews who endured to the end through the tribulation period. And everyone in mankind that's in heaven, it's the Gentiles who are saved, but, you know, Old Testament style, or, or maybe it's the, the ones who the 144,000 led to saving faith in Christ during their time in tribulation, during the tribulation period. That's why they're coming down in heaven. That's why they're associated as the Gentile. Sorry, I had to just speed through that. And then you have the New Jerusalem, which would be who? The church. That's why we looked at verse 2. A bride adorned for her husband, prepared as a bride. Oh. And you know what's going to happen here? Look at verse 4. At this point, all the judgments are done. Sin is forever dealt with. Hell is forever dealt with. The earth has been renovated by fire. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. And it's just everyone who loves God finally dwelling with their king, with their husband forever. And here's how it's spent. Verse 4. And God shall wipe away some tears, all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow. You know what sorrow is attributed to in Genesis chapter 3? I believe it's, don't quote me on this or fact check me later on it, but I believe it's equated with both Adam and Eve and their consequence of their sin against God in the garden. Or it's one or the other, if not both. You'll have to check it out later. Sorrow comes from sin. There will be no more sin. You will never again think another thought that is impure against God. You will never again say another word blasphemous to Him, sinful against Him. You will never again sin against your God. No more sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are, what, passed away. And He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said this to you and I at the moment of our salvation where He made everything new. Where what our former life was before we knew Christ, dead and gone, and everything's new for us. But now, everything, everywhere has been made new. Completely fresh start. You ever want a fresh start in your life? Man, you're going to get it. It's going to be awesome. On your outline, there's no more tears, no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. The old things are passed away. All things are become new. Hold your place here and flip back over to chapter 7. We didn't spend too much time on this chapter, but if you recall, I had mentioned that while the seven seals were being opened of the judgments of God, chapter 7 takes place as kind of a parenthesis period where it details things that are going on during that time. And it's where we get the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are evangelizing and sharing the gospel of the kingdom throughout the tribulation period, leading hundreds of thousands and millions to saving faith in Christ. And for those who go through the tribulation, they're going to come have martyrdom. They're going to suffer those famines we looked at in this class. They're going to suffer... In some cases, probably, the sting of some of these crazy, freaky locust beasts that we talked about or the demonic horsemen running around causing havoc when hell is literally unleashed on earth. Again, refer to the podcast for that. And those who are martyred, those who had their heads lopped off for the testimony of Jesus Christ, look what verse 15 says. Therefore are they... Before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, 
neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, Jesus Christ, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters. And check it out. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Isaiah 25, verse 8 says, He will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of His... What? And who are His people? The Jews, according to the context of this passage here in Isaiah. Shall He take away from off all of the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. If you want to add verse 9 to your notes, add this. Here it is. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. You know what I love about this in Isaiah 25? This here is Israel. You know what I love about Revelation chapter 7? It's the multitude of the tribulation saints who were martyred. You know what I love about Revelation 21 that we read? It's everyone else. All people groups who have ever called upon Him and trusted Him as Lord and Savior. Man. He's going to wipe away the tears of all of us. He's going to take away all pain. All sorrow, no more death. He's going to take care of His own. All of His people will experience this. Mark it down. All the tears that you shed from embarrassment, loneliness, and shame, no more. No more death of your friends, your family members, or loved ones. No more sorrow over broken friendships and relationships. Done. It's gone. No more internal pain and sorrow caused by depression. No more external pain caused by self-infliction or by others. Some of you in here, you're shouting hallelujah, amen. I want that to be now. We'll conclude tonight with a prayer that you can start praying that will help you with that. But others in here, you're probably thinking... I don't really experience any of that now to begin with. And it's probably because, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it's probably because you're not living godly. Because, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall what? Sorrow, pain, death, tears. I guess if there's man, Israel, tribulation saints, the church, I guess if there's a people group that this verse won't apply to, it's people who aren't suffering right now. Letter D, last page. New Jerusalem is the place where all born-again Christians dwell in the mansions that Christ prepared for us beforehand. Alright, we're going to try something here. Gibby, starting with you, we're just going to go down. We're each going to take a verse. We're going to start in verse 9, and we're all just going to work our way down. Revelation 21, we're going to snake around till we end in verse 23. So be ready to read the verse when it comes to you. Gibby, go ahead and start in verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. <laughs> and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven. Having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone, a most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a great and had a uh, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the na and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Hmm. 
on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city hath twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me and had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like under clear glass. <laughs> and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, Sure. <laughs> the fourth, an emerald. The fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, barrel, the ninth, a topaz, the tenth, a chrysoprasus, yep. the eleventh, a jacinth, the twelfth, an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every silver gate was one of the pearls, and the seat of the city was pure gold. And then the street of the city was pure gold, as it was transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple hmm. of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God to light in it, and the Lamb is the light. Amen. Man. Let's break it down. Christ said he was going to build us mansions. If that wasn't the truth, he would have told us. In my house, or my father's house, are many mansions, John 14, 2. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. So what does New Jerusalem look like? Well, we saw in verse 10 that it is a city... That is a great high mountain. And that it's made of pure gold. And as a couple people read, it's transparent. It's almost as though you can see right through it. And it's shaped like a diamond. We saw that four square was listed there. Like a, di a diamond shape. Its length, its width, and its breadth were all... Wow. <laughs> Welcome. You're welcome. Shapes. <laughs> its length, its breadth, and its width were all. Dude, he's getting there. He's working on it. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Yeah. No, no, no. That's a that's that's the way. Oh wait. Those it's supposed to be a pyramid. Those are supposed to be parallel lines. Yeah, I don't have a ruler, so they're not going to be... Point being, it's a pyramid. It's a diamond shape. When you actually look at the... Just look at the measurements. Hold on, we're getting there. Look at the measurements. On your outline. Well, number one, it hovers above the earth. The walls are 264 feet high. That's just the walls. The gates are made of a single pearl that stands 264 to 300 feet high. We read that. Now look, number three. It is 1,200 miles long by 1,200 miles wide by 1,200 miles high. It has a diamond shape. Therefore, it is like a pyramid. Thank you. To give the, uh, kind of the, uh, the illustration of that, if you were to go from Boston to Miami, and then from Miami to Denver, Colorado, and then Denver, Colorado to Buffalo, New Testament. It's a typo. Thank you. That was the joke. It's supposed to be Buffalo, New York, but it says Buffalo NT, Buffalo, New Testament. It's right next to Buffalo, New York. <laughs> Number four. <laughs> oh, I'm so going to win this dad joke competition. More on that later, next week. <laughs> this means, number four, this means that, I didn't reveal anything. I guess I did. This means that if one room, now check it out. Let's bring it back in now. If one room is 10 square feet, 
you could have 207 trillion rooms to fit within this pyramid. If 100 million Christians died every year since Acts chapter 2, every person could live in a house with at least 10 rooms, 10 feet square, and made of solid, pure gold. I want to touch on this for a little bit. This is part and parcel the inheritance that you and I are going to receive, right? We just read that in John 14, verses 2 to 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for who? You. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. This is part of our inheritance. This is part, just part of what we get. It's the icing on the cake. I mean, for those of us who are in here and are saved now, we have the living God living inside of us, ruling and reigning. He teaches us. He leads us. He speaks for us when we're witnessing and sharing our faith in Christ to our friends and family members. I mean, that's just, that's part of the riches that you and I get to enjoy every single day. That's something that even the Old Testament saints didn't get to have, that you and I get to experience right now. Everyone always talks about heaven and what we get in the streets of gold and the mansions and, and all, of the, all of the rooms that we're going to get and all of the responsibilities we're going to have. And man, I wonder how big my mansion's going to be. We can have parties. We always all talk about that. It's what everyone always looks towards as a part of the inheritance. And Christ even, or Paul even says in Acts 20, this is the last thing he says to the Ephesus church as he's about to leave them. He goes, and now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Hey, you want grace in your life? Not just Gracie, but you want grace in your life? Go to the word of grace in order to get it. I love that he puts that in there. I love that he calls the Bible that. The word of His grace, which is able to build you up when you're feeling down and you're in need of some grace. And, now check this out, and to give you an inheritance among who? All them which are what? The Bible says at the moment that you receive Christ, that you call upon Him to save you, you are sanctified. You are set apart. You are no longer like what you were like before you got saved. You're different. You have His Son living inside of you. That's who the sanctified are. But there's an inheritance on top of that, what we're talking about in Revelation 21. You follow? Because I'm going somewhere with this. And then he goes on, in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Mind you, he's writing to Christians here in Ephesus, people who are already sanctified, set apart. We have an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. What are we predestinated for? Is it salvation? No. Salvation is a choice. God leaves that choice up to us. That's what Ephesus or Ephesians is all about. He continues in verse 13. Well, how do I get saved? How do I obtain this inheritance? Well, it starts with trust. In whom, Jesus Christ, ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed... Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. God put His Holy Spirit inside of you and sealed you. You're His. Which is the earnest of our what? Inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. In other words, this is what I was saying earlier. Part of your inheritance, it's you have Christ and He has you. But it's going somewhere with that. He, he has purchased you, and one day, on the events surrounding this day, you're going to get a brand new body that will be just like as He is. Hold your place here and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I wanted to show you these verses first. Just so you know that the word inheritance, it's not just talking about the benefits that you and I have being Christians right now. And everything God does for us, that's not the only inheritance. Part of that inheritance is what we read in Revelation 21 about the mansions. 
and the rooms of gold and how much space we're all going to have and all the things God's going to give us, the dessert, the icing on the cake. Look at verse 7 with me. Now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because ye go to law one with another. The Christians in Corinth were struggling with suing each other, taking them to court. Why do ye not rather take wrong, accept responsibility, he's saying. Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, verse 8, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. So who is he talking to here? He just said the word brethren, so that means that the people he's talking to are what? Christians. Christians. Keep that in mind. Oh, and according to this verse here, uh, can we lose our salvation? No. We can't lose it because, number one, He purchased our salvation. We just saw that. We are the purchased possession. And He seals us with His Holy Spirit of promise. There's nothing we can do to ever lose salvation. Now look at verse 9. Know ye not, brethren, Christians, that the unrighteous shall not... What's that word? Inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you're going to lose some other parts of your inheritance if, brethren, you ain't living right. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Again, is he speaking to lost people here? No. This is a great doctrinal picture. Man, if you're in here and you're not saved... You're doing these things, you're not going to see heaven. You're not going to see or inherit the kingdom of God. But he's talking to brethren here. So the devotional application is, you get caught up as Christians in any of this stuff that he just mentioned, you're going to lose some inheritance of yours. Turn over to Galatians, two books over to your right. Galatians chapter 5. Can't wait for the judgment seat of Christ. Can't wait to see my mansion in heaven. Really? Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 16. This I say then. Oh, and by the way, the Galatians, it was a church, a group of churches of Bible believers. And that's who he's writing to. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're in a spiritual warfare as Christians. Our flesh, our old nature, the old man who was crucified with Christ, he wants to fight back for reign and dominance in our bodies, and the Spirit of God who lives inside of us wants to keep him dead and gone. We're in a fight. The flesh lusteth or warreth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are this. In other words, oh man, if you're in this spiritual fight and you give in to these works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, strong evil desires, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, Variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Just in case there was one, he forgot. Of the which I tell you before, 1 Corinthians, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things, Christian brethren, shall not inherit the kingdom of of God. I think that seals the point, but just to really put a nail in the coffin, go over a few pages to your right to Ephesians chapter 5. 
Again, he's not talking about how Christians lose their salvation because, again, look at the verse that's on the screen right now if you are confused by that. Christians who partake in this, they lose an inheritance. It's just not the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh who? That's a person who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's not talking to lost people here. Oh, and to boot, he throws in verse 4. <laughs> Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting. That's pranks, by the way. Which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, verse 5, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. You're a Bible-believing Christian who has a relationship with Christ, and you partake in the things that we find here, you won't lose your salvation. <laughs> but you might find that 10-room, 10-square-foot mansion, 10-foot-square-room, 10 rooms in your mansion of gold might be getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as you stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ where you're being tried again, not for your sins, but for your work as a Christian. You might find that I have absolutely nothing to show for the time that I was on this earth serving Him. Therefore, I have no inheritance. There's something that David wrote in the Psalms where he said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. There might just be some Christians in this very room. That might be your responsibility in New Jerusalem. That you're a doorkeeper. Praise the Lord. Like Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 1, at least you're saved. But if you squander your inheritance by living like a heathen on this earth, like the prodigal son did, who wasted his inheritance? Hey, his father ran to him, fell on him, kissed his neck. He had no inheritance, though. Sure, he got the fatted calf, he got a robe, everything. He had nothing else. You live your life in the time that you have as though you are still lost? Number one, examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. But number two, how much of your inheritance is getting burnt up by living that way on a daily basis? Letter E. Flip back to Revelation 21. We see in New Heaven, or New Jerusalem rather, that the nations and the kings of the earth, they'll walk therein and they'll bring their, they'll bring their honor and glory into it. You can check these passages out later. Then we come to chapter 22, the final chapter. And there in letter F, we see the tree of life. It's in the midst of the city. And we see the tree of life. It's there for the healing of the nations. For those people who come through the tribulation period maimed and hurt. Because remember, there are going to be some people who make it through the entire tribulation. They'll be on the earth the entire time. Maybe they come through it missing an arm. Maybe they come through it missing an eye. Maybe they have one of those ailments that they suffered from one of the four horsemen of the famine, of the pestilence, of the death. Maybe they're suffering of it. The tree of life is there to bring them healing. And those that keep God's commandments will be allowed to partake of that tree. Look with me in verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, no more sin. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their forehead. And there shall be... No night there. 
and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them the light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You might not have thought of this verse like this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting God, the Prince of Peace. Anybody see that on a Christmas card? Yeah, that's the first coming. The very next verse. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. That didn't happen in his first coming, did it? I guess in a devotional way, yeah. But not literally. Here we're talking about it literally happening. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. And then Hebrews chapter 1. Because you might be thinking to yourself, what then? What are we going to do in eternity future? You guys ready? I don't know. Oh, let down. But I do know this. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, the Word of God, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. What's it say? Worlds. <laughs> find out. Hope to see you there. Will I see you there? Will we find out together? Letter G. Follow with me in verse 7, actually, before we go to that. Behold, Jesus says, I come quickly. If he's saying that 2,000 years ago, either he's really slow or he's really patient and he's very long-suffering, knowing that the long-suffering of the Lord leadeth to salvation and repentance. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. You know what it means to keep? It means to watch or to be a watchman. To keep the watch, to be on guard, to hold fast the form of sound words, as 2 Timothy 1.12 says. To not let any of them slip, as Hebrews 2 verse 1 says. To keep, to hold fast the sayings of this book. And look at verse 18 as we come to this book as, as a close. Actually before that. Verse 17, And the Spirit and the Bride say, as a final invitation to all of mankind, Come, and let, it's a choice, him that heareth say, Come, and let, it's a choice, him that is a thirst, Come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. This gift is free. This gift of eternal life is free. You don't have to do anything other than just surrender and see your need for a Savior and call upon Him to save you. Believing He died on the cross and He rose again from the grave. For I testify, verse 18, unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, whether you've been here for the last 16 weeks or this is your first night here, did you hear the words of the prophecy of this book? And this verse is to you. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Oh, and to go back to the inheritance thing from earlier, verse 19. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part, his inheritance, not his salvation, his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city, your mansion, from the things which are written in this book. In other words, you know what God's final warning in all of the scripture is? Do not mess with the book. Do not touch and tamper with the book. 
I find it fascinating. This is at the end of the Bible. Wouldn't you know it? Towards the beginning of the Bible, he says the same thing. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it. Don't add to it, don't diminish, don't take away. That ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Oh, and for good measure, in the middle, almost smack dab in the middle of the Bible, he says this in Proverbs 30, verse 6. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Beginning, middle, and end. Do not mess with the book. Final warning he gives. And in letter G, Blessed are they that hear and keep the prophecies in the book of Revelation. We already read verse 7, and we already read verses 18 and 19. But I'm going to close with the last two verses. John's response to the revelation of Jesus Christ, which again, I'm closing, I'm wrapping up here. Just stay with me though. The book is called the revelation of Jesus Christ, not revelations. And yeah, you could say revelation. We refer to it as that. But the full title of it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. God in human flesh revealed in all of His glory, all of His majesty, all of His honor and His praise, all of it. You know what John's response to the revelation of Jesus Christ is? It's not one of despair. And we looked at some hopeless things in this book, didn't we? Being stung by locusts for five months on end, people seeking death and not finding it. 200 million demonic horsemen riding around tormenting and killing people in the tribulation period. That's despairing. That's hopeless. His response to the revelation of Jesus Christ wasn't one of hopelessness. It wasn't even one of wow, I'm worn out from all that. It wasn't even that. Let's look at it in verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, this is Jesus, Surely I come quickly. It's sure. Amen. Here's John. Here's his response to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even so, come Lord Jesus. His response to the revelation of Jesus Christ is one final prayer to close out the whole of Scripture. And you know the beautiful thing about it is that it has absolutely, this prayer request has absolutely nothing to do with Him. Not something He wants. Not something He's praying for as a request for Him. No. His response to the revelation of Jesus Christ, the vision that his eyes were anointed with, when he looked upon the majesty and the holiness and the righteousness and the glory of Almighty God, was, Come, Lord Jesus. After everything that we saw, everything he saw that would happen in this book, and the horror that is the day of his great wrath, after all of it, he's looking at things not from his perspective. He's looking at things not with his eyes, but from God's perspective. John's reaction to going through the book of Revelation was for God to get what God once, and the glory and the praise and the honor and the worship that he is worthy of and do his name. That was his response. He wanted nothing more than just to have that come to pass. The day when Jesus Christ is set down at the throne as King and Lord of all. That's what he wanted. No selfish prayer request, 
Nothing. Him, not me. Kind of fitting from the guy who once wrote in his gospel, I must decrease, you must increase. Can you identify with him on this? What's your reaction and response to the revelation of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, even though some of us may be going through here, or may be in here tonight that are going through the tribulation period because they have not come to the point where they realize their need for a Savior. They need to realize that they are sinners in need of You and that You love them so much You didn't want to see them separated from all of eternity. You became a man and went to the cross dying their death, but You didn't stay dead. You rose again three days later so that all who call upon You shall be saved. Lord, all they have to do is just look into those all-piercing, all-penetrating eyes of the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ and who He is and call upon Him to save them. And you'll do it. And they won't see the day of His great fierce wrath. But Lord, we're going to have family members. We're going to have friends at school that we go to school with whom we love and care about deeply that are going to go through this. Father, I pray we do everything we can to make sure that does not happen for them. But if it happens, even so, come Lord Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. In His name we pray. Amen.